Super Bowl one, final Packer offensive lineman announced during pregame introductions was who? Jerry Kramer. No, it's not Jerry Kramer. It is not Fuzzy Thurston. It is not Gail Gillingham. It is not Fuzzy Zeller. It is not Jim Ringo. What there? It is not. No, it's, it's not Bill Curry. Who is the god offensive lineman who was announced lastly in that stupid, asinine, crappy, garbage, terrible production game by NFL Never. Who is the offensive lineman? God this is Jerry Kramer, and you're listening to The Bridge. Get after it, Johnny. Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. Super Bowl 51 is around the corner, but what was it like to play in the first Super Bowl? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 53 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode on iTunes or over on my website at londonbridge.com on Friday nights. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can always call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you might just be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. As you all know, Super Bowl 51 is this upcoming Sunday, and while the bridge was unable to attend Radio Row in Houston, Texas for Super Bowl 51, we tried to do our due diligence and make this show as exciting as possible. So for this show, I was incredibly, incredibly fortunate and lucky to get this week's guest who happened to play in Super Bowl One and Super Bowl Two, Mr. Jerry Kramer, the former guard of the Green Bay Packers who played for nine seasons under the legendary head coach Vince Lombardi. But before we get into that interview, I wanted to play the clip 
of how I was first introduced to who Jerry Kramer was as the first part of the show. Christopher Mad Dog Russo, the namesake for the Mad Dog Sports Radio channel on Sirius XM, does a Super Bowl trivia show, or shows, I should say, in the week leading up to Radio Row for the Super Bowl. And he asks each caller up to four questions. The fourth question is usually incredibly hard. It's an audio clip of some sort. But if you're lucky enough to know all four of the answers correctly, you will be sent to wherever the Super Bowl is being held. Two tickets, and it's as easy as answering four trivia questions. He's been doing that show since his time at WFAN with Mike and the Mad Dog. Now just does it alone and does a pretty great job along with Bill Zimmerman and the others involved with it at stumping people and last year he ended up having one of his most famous radio rants because people were too stumped with a specific question i'm going to play that for you here so we end up being on the same page and as a small teaser for the guest that you will be hearing shortly uh, give me the offensive lineman for the packers who was last introduced during pregame introductions kramer not as incorrect. That's a good guess, Kramer, because, you know, he was on that line. So it's not Kramer, and it's not Forrest Gregg, and it's not um, Thurston. So there's only a couple more. <laughs> Jesus Christ, only a couple of more. Rick in Tucson. Rick, good afternoon. How's it going? All right, Rick, I'm doing well. The final Packer offensive lineman announced during pregame introductions in Super Bowl One. Gillingham. No, it's not him. Now, there's only one more. There is only one more. There is, that's, that's it. One more. It's not Gail Gillingham. It's not Jerry Kramer. It is not Jim Ringo. It is not Bill Curry. It is not Fuzzy. There's one more. That's it. Manny in Jacksonville. Super Bowl one. Manny, final pack of offensive linemen announced during pregame introductions. I, I don't know. Take a guess. That one, I don't know. Jack Lord, no, that's not the answer. From Hawaii 5-0, Ryan in Atlanta. Super Bowl one. final Packer offensive lineman announced during pregame introductions was who? Jerry Kramer. No, it's not Jerry Kramer. It is not Fuzzy Thurston. It is not Gail Gillingham. It is not Fuzzy Zeller. It is not Jim Ringo. What there? It is not. No, it's, it's not Bill Curry. Who is the god offensive lineman who was announced lastly in that stupid, asinine, crappy, garbage, terrible production game by NFL Never? Who is the offensive lineman? God Larry Naples, who's the offensive lineman? Oh, Chris, you always put me on the, on the, in a hole, buddy. You always put me on a hole. Who is it? Um, uh... Uh, give me the give me the ones that were already mentioned. No, listen, Larry, listen. <laughs> Who? Uh, what was it? Um, Forrest Gregg. No, I said it's not Forrest Gregg. It's not Forrest Gregg. It is not Jerry Kramer. It is not Fuzzy Thurston. It's not Mel Hine. It's not Vince Lombardi. It's not Ray Nitsky. It's not Mike Webster. It is not Anthony Munoz. Jeff in Florida. Who's the lineman? Jeff! Wake up! Who's the lineman? 
Dead. Dead. This is the garbage you give me? Zach in Philly. Zach, who's the lineman? Well, it's Seth. And I'm going to say Bill Curry? No, I just said it wasn't Bill Curry. God. No. It is not Bill Curry. It is not Fuzzy Thurston. It's not Forrest Gregg. It's not Jerry Kramer. Who? Oh, it's not Big Bob Brown. Who is the God lineman? Short in New Haven. Who's the lineman? Which lineman do you want to know? The offensive lineman. This is part of the mob. He get it right. The last offensive lineman. Packers introduced Super Bowl one. Who is it? The first Super Bowl. Yes. All right. Um, it's got to be between Bob Skaronsky and Tony Mandarich. I'll say Bob Skaronsky. Yay! Yay! Let's take a quick break to get in our Super Bowl bets. When we come back, we'll talk to legendary Green Bay Packer Jerry Kramer about how he got started playing football and some of his experiences with the Green Bay Packers. We'll be right back on The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Now, getting into this week's guest, as I mentioned, I was incredibly fortunate and lucky enough to get to speak to Jerry Kramer, the former offensive guard for the Green Bay Packers back when they formed one of the first dynasties in the NFL under the legendary head coach Vince Lombardi. Jerry's a five-time NFL champion, five-time first-team All-Pro, two-time second-team All-Pro, a member of the NFL's 19th. 1960s All-Decade team. He was named to the NFL 50th anniversary team. He's in the Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame. He's done some things is what I'm getting at. And it was incredible to get to speak about his career and to talk some football with him. I could have him on the show several more times and we still wouldn't get into all the different things we could talk about. So I tried to bat around a little bit and get to some main points and hopefully we can have him on again sometime in the future, maybe when the NFL season is getting closer next year. But we talk about how he got into football, some of the different things and games that he did with the Green Bay Packers, some of the things that he's done since. Since then, I can't say enough how much of an honor it was to talk to such a legendary person, and it's great that he's as sharp as he is and as well-spoken as he is and can keep alive those first years of the National Football League, especially involving such a great team like the Green Bay Packers were. I also have to give a brief shout-out to Mike Babchek. If there are any members of Foul Nation listening, you probably never thought you would hear such a thing. But believe me, I owe a lot to that man for this. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with five-time NFL champion, five-time first-team All-Pro, a member of the NFL's 1960s All-Decade team, a member of the NFL 50th Anniversary team, and a member of the Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame. I think we've hit on just about everything. Former Packer right guard, the legendary Jerry Kramer. Jerry, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you enjoying your time in Houston so far? Well, Johnny, pleasure being with you, but I've got to correct you a little bit here. We're, we've now announced ourselves as seven-time All-Pro. We were five-time first-string All-Pro, and I broke a leg in 61, uh, got mashed on the kickoff, and uh, I made second string in 61. And then I made second string like in 68 or something when we had a losing season. And uh, I never would count a second string all pro. I just was 
arrogant enough and young enough to say if I wasn't first string, I wasn't going to be on it. <laughs> but now it seems like I was part of the team, and it's probably a good idea. You know what? You're right. Oh. <laughs> You're right about that. I should have included that as well. So we'll make that addendum seven-time okay. Pro Bowler. We've got plenty to talk about, and I wanted to start with what some people at least might have been introduced to you by, and it was what I was introduced to you by. Christopher Mad Dog Russo puts on a Super Bowl trivia show. He's been doing this since his WFAN days, now on Mad Dog Sports Radio, in the week leading up to Radio Row. One of his famous rants came from one of the questions that you were associated with, and I wanted to see if maybe you could also answer that. His question was, what Green Bay Packer offensive lineman was the last to be announced during the pregame introductions for Super Bowl One. Interesting question. I, was, it was, I think it's probably Bob Skaronsky, but I'm not sure of that. You're 100% correct. Yay! Yay! It's not Bill Curry. It's not Fuzzy Thurston. It's not Forrest Gregg. It wasn't you. You're spot on with that. See, I knew you were going to be sharp with that sort of question. He'd be proud to have you on the show as a contestant, but I don't know if he'd allow you to do that. Well, Bob Skronsky was uh, our team captain and should have been uh, introduced first, but uh, he normally was, uh, uh, yeah, there's uh, Greg and uh, Kramer and Thurston and Ringo and uh, Bowman uh, and uh, that other guy, uh, <laughs> that guy, the left tackle, you know, the other guy. Yeah. And people just had a difficult time. Even Coach Lombardi, Johnny, at one point, we're in a meeting watching film, and uh, Coach is always in the offensive meeting and always a head critic. And uh, so he, he uh, sees something that Bob's doing, and he goes, uh, 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 76. What are you doing there? What are you thinking about? <laughs> and afterwards, Bob goes, I've been here for seven years. He doesn't even know my name. He's 76. <laughs> he calls me 76. <laughs> so so that was uh, Bob's uh, spot in life. And a wonderful football player and a wonderful human being. And great guy. But uh, what was his name again? Well, at least we have that trivia question now for people in my generation to at least get to know him a little bit better. Now, you ended up moving to Idaho around the fourth grade and eventually accepted a football scholarship to play for the University of Idaho. Why did you decide to pursue playing football, and what did it mean to you to get to play collegiately so close to home? Well, you know, when I moved from, the family moved from Salt Lake or Lake up to uh, Sand Point, uh, I was a new kid in school. I started the, the fourth grade there, and so the kids uh, all knew one another except me, right? I was an odd bird. So they asked me if I wanted to play football. And I said, sure, I'd like to play football. How do you play? Well, come on, let's tell you. So they gave me the ball, and then about nine of them jumped on me. I bloodied my nose and slipped my lip a little bit, and... Um, teacher happened to be walking by and she uh, took me upstairs to the office and cleaned me up and put a bandage on my nose or something like that and said, now you just sit down and have your lunch and you be quiet the rest of the lunch period. And I said, no, I need to go play football. I'm going to go play. So I went right back and got into it again. So you know there's a lack of intelligence there to begin with. <laughs> 
there's a and, and, and you know, ability to shrug off the pain or whatever it happened to be. And uh, another incident happened when I was a junior, you know, a sophomore in high school. I had a a moment with the college coach. I was down at the far end of the locker room when the college coach was in, in town talking to a couple of our seniors at Sandpoint High. And uh, I'm down to in the locker room and I'm the only one there all of a sudden I look up and the coach is walking toward me and walking down the locker room toward me and I look side to side and back behind me and wonder where he's going and why he's coming down this way you know anything there but me and he came down and uh, shook my hands and said hello and he said you're the kind of boy we'd like to see at the University of Idaho and it it was a huge moment for a sophomore, right? A sophomore seems to be the awkward period of life in high school. It certainly was for me. And um, I started thinking that, wow, if they want me to play college football and I'm only a sophomore in high school, maybe there's a chance I could play that other game later on. I wouldn't verbalize that to anybody. I wouldn't tell anybody. I wouldn't embarrass myself by thinking I might be a pro ball player. That was a faraway dream and a, you know, an impossible situation. But I did have an opportunity to go to the University of Washington and, and Washington State and several other schools. And uh, I wanted to be where my folks could get to a game and see me play and be a part of things. And so the University of Idaho wanted me and offered me a nice scholarship and a nice situation. And some of my other pals were going there. So I ended up going to the University of Idaho. I struggled between there and Washington. Washington was a big school. It got more notoriety and more publicity, more of everything probably. And, uh, but I felt that I said, well, if you go to Idaho, you're going to play a lot of football. And the more you play, the better you play. So I said, well, one thing about it, I'm going to get to play a lot in Idaho, and that'll make me a better player, and so I am going to Idaho. So that was the thought process. I know you kicked some in college and as well as in the NFL with extra points and field goals. How far would you estimate you were able to kick? I was tied for second place in the nation my junior year with three field goals. Uh, Obviously, we didn't kick a lot <laughs> back at that time. But I was effective uh, to about 40 yards, I guess. Uh, I I was uh, I played both ways, defensive nose guard and as a uh, offensive tackle in college. And then I moved into offensive guard, I think, my second year there. So I was uh, constantly moving and every every which way and it was an incredibly draining day I mean we played extra points kickoffs kickoff returns punts punt returns every play I was on the field and uh, so when it came time to kick I may have just ran a 40 yard sprint down the sideline or something and uh, having a difficult time getting my breathing and that he couldn't take time out he couldn't take the time to get yourself together so Plus, the shoes were always a little suspect that we had a round toe shoe. We didn't get a square toe till we got the green bag. But um, I enjoyed kicking. I, I had a couple real memorable days. 
and put the kick in Yankee Stadium in the 62 championship. I uh, kicked uh, three field goals in the extra point. We uh, win 17-7, and I score 16-7. Uh, I score 10 points, so it's a very big day for me. And I mean, just walking into Yankee Stadium was a big day. So to be on the field and to be able to have a make a difference in the score was quite a day. So I uh, I enjoyed it. Right, and you ended up playing in one of the coldest games in NFL history at Yankee Stadium that people don't often associate with the ice ball, which we can get to. You mentioned when you were drafted by Green Bay in the fourth round that you didn't really have any idea where Green Bay was living over in Idaho at that time. But once getting there and it being much like where you grew up, a small town and really a close-knit environment, what were the Packers fans like toward you and toward the team throughout your career? Well, the Packers fans were... uh extremely involved. I, I kind of assumed that the Packer fans would be a little more laid back, a little more cool, and uh, not emotional, and not jumping up and down about the game. And I just kind of, kind of thought they'd be a little, um, maybe less in, in, involved in, in, than the, the college kids would. So I get to Green Bay. I played in college All-Star games a couple weeks late. And I'm down at a magazine store in Green Bay, and I buy a couple magazines. And a, a trim little lady, from mother type, must have been in her 60s, with white hair and a nice little blouse on, and just just spick and span. And she says, uh, "Are you a football player?" I said, "Yes, ma'am. I, I am. Yes, ma'am. I am." She said, "Are you ready for this? Going to be playing playing Bears?" And I just opened my mouth and nothing came out. And she didn't say blank, she blank. She said, son of a da 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 And uh, I was just stunned. And I, uh, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I think we are. I think we are. And so I was I was taken back by how involved the, the fans were in the games and how much they knew about it. And uh, they really... Uh, I'm a special breed of fan. They're a, a sports person, too. They're really a good sportsman. And, uh, people that come into town to play in Green Bay or watch the opponent play uh, are welcome, and they're treated with dignity and uh, kindness. And uh, So they're really a great group of fans in, in Wisconsin. So we've got two teams that are going to be battling for your former coach as the name of the trophy. And after your rookie season, he gets hired as the new head coach for the Green Bay Packers and was known for how hard he worked you guys. But in a sense, he also knew how to push all the right buttons while doing so. Why do you think the team stuck it out with him in that early going when he might have been a little bit different as far as his workload to you guys? You know, it was um, it was very difficult to develop a warmth or emotional feeling about him other than anger. And uh, we were we were not real excited about training camp. I mean, he worked us harder than we'd ever worked in our lives. We had kids passing on the field uh, during practice. We had them passing out after they showered and got on the bus and gone back to 
the college and we're standing in the line having getting ready for months. They would pass out, lose consciousness, and collapse on the floor. So he was working this to that extent, and it was just always to be alive. And so it was a uh, it was not much fun, and there wasn't much uh, giggling going on at that time. And then we we won our first game, and um, then we won our second game, and then we won our third, and I think we won four in a row my first year. And then Jimmy Taylor got burned in a cooking accident in his home, and he had to sit down and. We ended up seven and five after a one kid and one record the year before. So the results started to make us a little more comfortable with the work that we were putting in. And, and guys would say, you know, in the playoff time in the late part of the season, in the winter, they'd say, remember July, remember July, somebody go pay, somebody go pay. And so it just kind of started to pay off the hard work and effort and all the focus, concentration, discipline Coach Lombardi talked about started to pay dividends and we started to win. And the second year, we got to play the championship game in Philadelphia at the end of the season. And we got beat the last few seconds of the game. We're on the seven yard line when the clock expires and we really felt like we got cheated uh, there was about nine seconds left on the clock at their middle linebacker Chuck Bittnerick laid on Jimmy Taylor until the clock expired so we really were angry and frustrated and really didn't know what to do about it and uh, in the locker room after the game the coach was out doing some interviews or something but he was out about 15 minutes later than the rest of us and when he finally came in the locker room, he said, all right, bring it up. Everybody up. Bring it up. So we all went to the front of the locker room, and he got up on a trunk, a trunk of uh, capes or something, and uh, said, all right, this year we played in the championship. Next year we win the championship. And at that moment, I, I threw in with him. I said, he's right. He's been right about everything he's done, his commitment, his discipline, his preparation, his perseverance, his tenacity, character, pride, all the things he's lectured us about. He's right about that, and he's right about football. And next year we're going to win this thing, and I believe we did, we would, and we did. So uh, the, it must have been touch and go for a while, John, to, to get, uh, get past some of those practices and the uh, get to the point where we were winning and we could see them for a while, but it ultimately happened. Jumping to the winning part a little bit farther ahead for Super Bowl One, that would be the first year where the NFL championship was not the end all. There was going to be another game after that, but you guys were, of course, familiar with winning that game. Did that mean more to you to beat the Dallas Cowboys than it did when you ended up beating the Chiefs in the following game in the Super Bowl? Yeah, it meant, it, 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 you know, we were making a lot of money uh, at the time. I signed, my first contract was $8,000, and I finally got up to twenty-seven, twenty-eight at the end of my career. We had a $15,000 
a payoff in the Super Bowl or in the AFL NFL championship game. So it was big money. I mean, it was almost some of us were equaling our salary. Some of us would have a 50% bonus. And so it was a, a big number. And uh, we had got the taste of the championships. So it was a big thing to us. And the game itself and the, the NFL, NFL, AFL rivalry had not really uh, penetrated to us. It was, wasn't much of a uh, factor in terms of getting ready for the ball game. The, the money was more of a factor. And our pride and our position and the fact that we were champions. Uh, this was our fourth championship game. We won 61, 62, 65, and then 66 was the Soup one and sixty seven was soup two, so it was our either our fourth or fifth championship. Right, and uh, that isn't as exciting as your first. Your first is always the most exciting, and so it was. Uh, as we approached Kansas City in Super Bowl one, it was do your job, right. take care of business, uh, play like a professional. Don't give anything away. Don't make any stupid mistakes. Just play like you can play and let's get this done and put it away and win this and go on to go on to the house. So it was more of a workmanlike job and proud that we did it and got it done well and took care of business like we expected to and we felt we should. But it wasn't crazy excitement and going wacko and jumping up and down. Who was more nervous for Super Bowl one, you or Coach Lombardi? I think Coach Lombardi but significant factor. I didn't really realize. I knew he was he, he had doubled our fines or quadrupled our fines or ten times. We Instead of a $500 fine for sneaking out it was 5000 And uh, so he had made all kinds of threats and actually kept us up in Santa Barbara away from L.A. so that we wouldn't stray. He had a lot of pressure on him. Um we didn't really have that much pressure, but we we wanted to win, and and he wanted us to win. But uh, the Mara family, the Hallis family, the Rooney's, uh, all the old line NFL people were calling Coach Lombardi and saying, "You got to win big. You can't just squeeze a win out. You got to embarrass them. You got to trounce them. Got to really win big." So Frank Gifford and I were talking about the game few years later and he said you know jerry i was pretty cool i know there were two networks and i knew it was a big game but I, you know i done some big games i was pretty comfortable and i'm interviewing coach lombardi and i put my arm on his shoulder and he's shaking like a leaf and he said now i get nervous now i know coach lombardi's this nervous he's making me nervous so i never had that experience and i just uh and and Buck Buchanan was on Fuzz's side, too, so that helped my nerves. Buck was about 6'8 and 285 and lean, wonderful football player. And uh, he was on the other side, so I didn't have a very tough opponent in that game. So um, it worked out pretty well for us. So the following year, as you mentioned, you make it to the NFL championship game again in another rematch against Dallas, but at least now on your home field in Lambeau. And fans know this game as the Ice Bowl. And I have to ask, because everyone listening and probably everyone you meet asks, 
how you were able to prepare for that game. I know you were probably used to the cold from some outdoor life in Idaho, but I don't know if that prepared you for an average wind chill of, say, negative 50 degrees. You know, I think it did. Comfortable hunting ducks at 25 below, or I had uh, down equipment, and I understood the cold. And when I was getting ready for that ice bowl, I took a pair of thermal underwear and cut them off at the knees and then put a top on and cut them off at the elbows. Uh, and then I put a, a little dickie uh, around my neck and down the front of my chest and a pair of brown, just brown work gloves on, cotton gloves. And so I felt that I was okay. I was I knew we'd be out there, you know, for an hour or so, and I felt like I could take that, and I was okay with that. So I was able to pretty much forget about the cold and try to focus on the Dallas Cowboys and what our game plan was and who my opponent was and that kind of thing rather than the cold. And I think that was an advantage for us because I know a lot of the Cowboys were thinking about the cold, and they were it was bitter cold. The chill factor was like minus 57. And it was the second coldest game ever. I think they had a minus 61 game at Cincinnati five years later or so. But it was bitter cold, and it really came down to the last few seconds of the game. And we scored on a quarterback sneak with 13 seconds to go. And so it was a, one of the iconic games in the NFL and in certainly Packer history. We know about your block in that game and how memorable that play in general was for Bart Starr to sneak that in. But what some people probably don't know is that in the preparation for that game, you had actually noticed that a play like that would work in the film room. What did you see on the tape to recommend being able to do that running play that ended up winning the game in such a big spot like that? Well, we had a, uh, a short yardage day on Thursday. We put in our short yardage offense that we wanted to use on the goal line and fourth and one or third and one or a short yardage situation. And uh, we watched the opponent's short yardage plays from the last three games. So the film people uh, at Green Bay would cut a lot of the plays out and just save the short yardage films for us. So I'm watching Jethro, she was a defensive tackle on my side, and uh, I watched the first game, and he is consistently high. The Cowboys have like a stink bug defense where their tails are in the air, their noses are about 10 inches from the ground, and Bob Lilly, on the opposite side, would charge low and hard, and he was almost impossible to, to block backwards. Jethro, the young guy over me, would come up. His first move, he was about 6'7", 265 or so, and so his he was wanted uh, to see what was going on, I guess, but his first move was up. So I watched all three films, and in every situation, Jethro was up. So I mentioned to Coach Lombardi that we could wedge Pew if we needed to for a yard or two, and he, what? kind of barked at me, and I said, we can wedge Pew if we have to. Run that back. So I run back the projector three or four times, and that's right, put in a wedge on Pew. Now, you, you know, 
that's in the locker room and it's on Thursday and the chances of, uh, you know, getting in a position like we were in were very small. You think maybe that, you know, it'd be second quarter to might have a fourth and two or something like that, or it might not never come up. Right. You know, just, just the chance that if we do have a wedge, we might wedge two. But if I had known it was going to be on the one-yard line with 13 seconds to go and the game was going to be on the line, I may not have suggested it. <laughs> <laughs> I may have suggested Fuzzy or somebody else, but it was obvious to me that it was a possible play, and so it worked out great, and Jethro did exactly what he'd been doing in the previous games, and I got into him, and the rest is history. One of the major talking points for when you played under Vince Lombardi was the popularity of what's known as the Green Bay Packers sweep, one of the more successful running plays probably in NFL history, the importance that a seal is for that to work. If Coach Lombardi were to draw up that play on the blackboard right now, how do you think he would describe that? Well, just like he did for years and years and years. The the uh, offensive tackle on the, the side we're running to, say we're running to our right, the right tackle, uh, has a responsibility to hit the defensive end. It depends upon the call. They can change this call at the line of scrimmage later and, and uh, have him uh, block in a, a, a different way. But generally, he would hit the defensive end with his right shoulder and kind of get the attention of the defensive end. And he had to hit him hard enough to take his mind off the back that was about five yards deep in the backfield. And it was his assignment to cut the defensive end down. So if the offensive tackle didn't make a good move on the defensive end, then he, the black pack would never be able to block him. So then that tackle had to get the middle linebacker. And that's a pretty intricate blocking scheme right there. So if that doesn't work, nothing works. Um, the center has to make an onside block. I pull, and the center blocks the tackle on my side on the even man defense where I've got the tackle lined up over me. And uh, I pull and go outside on the halfback. The, the tight end is split about four or five yards, and he has to block the linebacker on that side. And his assignment is to take the linebacker in the direction he wants to go. So if he wants to come inside, he must stay in contact with him, but he drives him inside and the same as for outside. The off tackle follows and picks up uh, the the backside defensive tackle, tries to cut him down. Receiver over there goes downfield, tries to get in play somehow with a safety or a corner or something. And Fuzzy and I turn the corner, and I go outside on the halfback, and Fuzzy turns inside to pick up the first guy he comes to. If uh, if it happens to be a defensive end and the back didn't block it, well, Fuzzy takes him. If it happens to be the middle linebacker that the tackle didn't get, Fuzzy takes him. If it happens to be the safety, then it's the first man he comes to. So it's really a a pretty intricate play, and and it has a a variety of alleys and avenues to run in. And uh, it gained 8.3 yards per carry 
for the first three years we ran it. It averaged 8.3 yards. And Coach Lombardi in the early, early years would say, run it again, run it again. And so we'd line up and we'd run it again and run it again. And we ran that instead of sprints. And so when we would run the play in practice and, and we'd make a mistake, that particular player would stop, stand up, and say, run it again, run it again. And so Coach didn't have to say that after a while. We started saying it. And it was a it was a wonderful play, and it could go in several different spots, and that's what made it so effective, I think. Made it look easy from running it again and again and again. A year ago, you ended up selling several of the items of your memorabilia to create a college fund for your five grandchildren. Super Bowl one ring sold for a decent amount of money. What I found interesting is that you kept your ring from Super Bowl two, and that marked the third consecutive championship that the Green Bay Packers had won, which has still never been done it was also Vince Lombardi's last game as head coach for the Packers. What made you hold on to that ring? Several things. Uh, first of all, that season, that was our, we were trying to win that championship that year to, to be a three-time, three-consecutive champion. Never been done before. So Coach Lombardi gives us an hour-and-a-half speech about the challenge we face and the challenge that we have to overcome to win our third consecutive title and what it will mean for us in history. So it was at the beginning of the season, we start planning on trying to win our third consecutive title. So it was a long season. Uh, teams were waiting for us. They'd been studying our film for three years. They knew everything we were going to do. Um, the worst team in the league is laid back, and he's coming after you with every ounce of energy he has. So it's just a long and difficult season. Uh, the Rams beat us in L.A. Uh, three weeks before the playoffs, and then we beat them 28-7, to 7, I think, in the playoffs and go on to the Ice Bowl. We have a wonderful drive down in the Ice Bowl, and it was uh, at the end of the game, and whether it's deteriorating and everything is frozen up and we are not dominating uh, and we had run about 30 plays and we had gained a minus 9 yards we had 10 possessions minus 9 yards Right. and uh, so Bart comes into the huddle and I asked him later I said Bart what made you think you could take that team down the field after they had gained the minus nine yards, they hadn't gained the yard in 31 plays. He said, to look in your eye, look in Forrest's eye, look in Gilly's eye, look in Ski's eye. He said, I knew you knew what we had to do, so all I said was, all right, let's go. So something happened to that team, and I don't know how to explain it except that. I have read stories about a lady lifting a car off a baby uh, in a flight-or-fight response, maybe. Uh, and so there was something that happened to our adrenaline or hormones or, or our being, and we turned up the dial, and we went 65 yards in about four minutes and scored with 13 seconds to, to beat the Cowboys and go on to Super Bowl two. And it was a, 
big day for me. I had the block on the uh, quarterback sneak, and then they replayed that in the locker room. And Coach Lombardi, Tommy Brookshire, was doing the color, and he said, "Watch the coach as Jerry Kramer makes this block on the quarterback sneak." And they play the play, and Coach goes, "Way to go, Jerry! Yeah, <laughs> way to go!" He claps and applauds and carries on, and this is a nice moment for a lineman. You know that doesn't happen to us very often. Right. So a big moment, and then we won the second Super Bowl, our third consecutive title. And then again, you mentioned that it was the coach's last game. So all all of those things combined made it a much more important ring to me. Our first Super Bowl ring, you know, we it was our like our fourth championship. So it wasn't particularly special. It was nice that it would be a Super Bowl one ring, but Super Bowl wasn't that big a deal, you know, initially anyway, and so. It was a bit of a decision between Super Bowl One and Super Bowl Two, but uh, seeing the coach's last game and all, I decided that that was the ring I would wear, and so that is the ring that I have worn since I received it. That wasn't the ring that you almost lost after leaving it on the bathroom sink of an airplane, was it? No, that was that was Super Bowl One, and I did lose it, and it was gone for twenty five years, and. Uh, I got a call from a guy in Chicago at a uh, pawn shop that said he thought he had my ring. And I said, well, I had my ring stolen from the bathroom on an airplane. I'd gone to the John and washed my hands with hot soapy water, and the ring slid off, and I put it on the edge of the sink and went back and sat down. And by the time I remembered, it was gone. And uh, so we didn't see it in... It showed up in this uh, memorabilia shop. It had been in the pawn shop and been gone for 25 years. And the guy made it possible for me to get the ring back. He came up to Green Bay and made a presentation, and we had a little celebration there getting the ring back. And so I auctioned off. The, I had bought a replacement ring, an identical Super Bowl one ring. And so I auctioned that off and started Gridiron Greats uh, funds for the guys' pension plans and disability problems and things like that. So it was eventually the, the replica was put to good work and use, and the, and the Super Bowl one ring was uh, put to good use, too. So we're pretty comfortable with all that. In 1968, you teamed up with the Great Dick Shop to write the best-selling book, Instant Replay, which was basically a diary of that 1967 season and put us inside the locker room, so much so we even get to hear Vince Lombardi's address to the team after Super Bowl II. What was your inspiration for writing that book, and were there any fears of maybe overstepping your bounds of the general thinking of that time that what happens off the field is kept private? Uh, Dick called. And uh, we were pals, and we'd been doing quite a few things together. And he said, uh, how would you like to write a book? I said, what do you mean, write a book? He said, write a book? I said, what the hell do I know about writing a book? Well, he said, I'm, we'll get you a tape recorder, and you record your impressions, your, your day, your calendar, and everything that's going on, and what your practices are like, and time is like, and da-da-da, and I'll transcribe it. 
and we'll make it into a book. And I says, who gets final say? He says, you do. I said, let's talk. So we went to New York and talked to the publisher and the agents and all the folks that uh, were working with us on the book. And they suggested that if we sold 7,500 copies, we'd do good. Uh, sports books did not sell. And um, if we sold between 7,500 and 10,000, it would be good and they'd be very happy. Well, we sold 440,000. We're on the bestseller list for 44 weeks, and we just had a wonderful time with it. The only thing I got from the guys, they were all first grade, roomed across the uh, hallway from me at St. Norbert College, and we found 11 o'clock, we're in bed, and Gail Gillingham was rooming with Forrest, and she said something about the book. And Forrest says, that damn book. Everywhere I go, people want to talk about that book. I'm getting sick of that book. I'll tell you one thing, though, Jerry. You were dead honest. And I thought that was probably the nicest compliment I ever had. And there was a lot of emotion in me initially about maybe I ought to get very flowery with my language. And if I was going to be an author and a writer, then I had to create phrases and, and make things really special and... And I did, went through that for about three days in uh, the little uh, self-image or inside guy said, hey, fool, you are what you are. It is what it is. So tell it like you see it and be as dead honest as you can be about it and let it go. So I uh, took a moment and thought about that and decided that's the way I was going to approach the project and just try to be as dead honest as I possibly could. And if people didn't like it, they didn't like it. If they did, that's wonderful. So it was a great experience. I had, I had a lot of fun doing it. Well, I'd be remiss to not mention what I'm sure is on a lot of people's minds when they hear your name, and that's regarding the NFL Hall of Fame, which will actually be holding its ceremony this upcoming Saturday. You've been a 10-time finalist, but are the only player from the 50-year anniversary team to not be in the Hall, and would also end up being the 12th from that Lombardi-era team to make it in. And I know you've talked about this before and mentioned that you're blessed beyond measure in so many regards and have sort of come to terms with not having been selected, but know how much that would mean to you if it were to ever happen. What would you say or what would be some of your main talking points if you were selected into the Hall of Fame and ended up giving that acceptance speech? Yeah, that's a tough question. I haven't allowed myself to go there uh, uh. I, it would obviously be a wonderful honor and a great thing in the Hall of Fame is the, the top uh, top shelf, the top top of the heap for almost everybody. And I, I I would obviously be very pleased and very flattered to to be considered for that. But I you you tell me that I have had the life that I've had when I left Boise or Sandpoint, Idaho. You tell me that I could have played in a single world championship game, that I might have won one. I would take that in a heartbeat. I, I, I just, I have done so much more than I could ever dream. And football has been so much greater to me. There's so many teams that we've made and so many honors we've been given that it's just. Uh, goes beyond my imagination sometimes and I just think I'm dreaming but 
it's been a, just a wonderful ride. And for me to be upset over one present I didn't get or one honor that was not bestowed on me and to be upset because I had gotten 99 and I didn't get one, it seems kind of stupid to me. So I refuse to let it bother me or really get in, in under my skin. And it's just been a wonderful ride. And the game has been great to me. And it still is. It's still been great to me. I'm in my 80s and I'm still signing autographs and doing speaking engagements and having a wonderful time. So uh, Jerry Kramer uh, has been treated very well by, by football. And the, as the uh, Puerto Rican guy said, football been very, very good to me. <laughs> <laughs> I know you get to meet a ton of people while you're still continuing to travel, not only to Lambeau, but throughout the country. You're in Houston now, and a younger generation is getting to know Jerry Kramer, whether that's from their parents or grandparents or even yourself. When it comes to that younger generation, how have you been keeping up with technology? Are, are you on a smartphone? Are you texting? Are you using social media? What are you up to in that regard these days? I got me an iPad and an iPhone and I got me an email address and I text and do email and check the world out uh, every, every day or two, uh, get behind with my mail and uh, don't answer everything. And um, I keep track of whether the one and I use, uh, use uh, the iPhone all day long, you know, generally that's my communication device and I use my iPad later in the evening when I want to go over things. But uh, it's, a, it's a new world out there, and I'm not totally uh, fluent in my uh, electronic uh, brain, but uh, my son Danny and uh, Alicia both are uh, around, and they help me. <laughs> right, I was going to say, there's plenty them. of children or grandchildren to go to if there's questions, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, Charlie, who is now four years old, Alicia's boy, Charlie, He's got uh, his iPad too, and he's uh, he's he's not helping Grandpa yet, but he's on the edge. <laughs> so Grandpa's doing pretty good. Now we know you're in Houston for the Super Bowl, and for the past several years, you've been teaming up with Blimpy to do that. What are they doing with you while you've been roaming around this week for Radio Row? We're having a a little uh, love affair with Blimpy. It's a wonderful sandwich and fresh meat, fresh veggies and cheese and bread. Just they make a neat, really neat Super Bowl uh, sandwich. <clears throat> they make a three foot sandwich and a six foot sandwich for Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, everybody who comes over to watch the game with you can cut off whatever makes them happy. And so that's pretty pleasant. And I'm uh, I've been doing interviews with folks and talking about Wimpy for six, seven years now, and it's been a very nice relationship and. Uh, Got some great folks working with Blimpy, and it's a good product. It's a good, solid product. It's reasonable and it's a quality. So I'm pretty pleased to be a part of their team and associated with them. To wrap this up, we've got Tom Brady and Bill Belichick going for their fifth Super Bowl, and we'll be playing in their seventh overall with the New England Patriots going up against the Atlanta Falcons, perhaps the hottest team going in the National Football League. Who do you think is going to win this year's Super Bowl? I think it's going to be a great ball game first. And I, uh, I'm, I like Atlanta a lot. 
I like their offense. I like their defense. I like the quarterback. I like the receivers, the running back, the D linemen, the linebackers. They're, they've got a wonderful football team. If they don't get awed by Tom Brady and the fact that they maybe watched him in high school or in college and cheered for the Patriots when they were growing up, and, and this is going to overwhelm them. It's, it's, I remember walking in Yankee Stadium uh, and seeing the ghosts of Yankee Stadium, the statues of Gehrig and DiMaggio and, and Mickey out in the mid, middle center field and just being overcome with emotion just to walk into the place and the crowd, the roar of the crowd. And there have been so many childhood memories of fights and baseball games and all kinds of sporting events at Yankee Stadium. So I was overwhelmed by the, the stadium and I was able to get myself together. But sometimes that lingers a little bit. And if they find themselves watching Brady instead of defending Brady, then they're going to lose the football game. And if they let it get close and it's the end of the game, Tom's done awfully well at the end of the game for a long time. And he's a smart veteran quarterback who's going to take pick you to pieces if he can. So Atlanta has got a challenge ahead of them and a chore. When they keep their head together and keep their eyes on the ball, they can, they can do it. But will they do it? is the question. So we'll watch with everybody else Sunday and see what the answer is. Yeah, we've got an exciting game ahead, and we know where we can get some food to munch on while we watch the game as well. So you can't really ask for much more to close out this season. Jerry, I have to thank you once again for coming on to the show. It was an honor to get to learn a little bit more about what you've been up to and hear it from you and just kind of go back in time a little bit to what it was like to play for one of the greatest teams in NFL history and get a little bit more of information about your career as well. Hopefully down the road, we might be able to do this again. You can come on for probably five or six more shows and we'll still have more than enough to talk about, but it was great getting to catch up with you like this. Hopefully maybe next season we'll be able to do so again, but continued success. Keep up the good work. Keep letting everybody know about the Green Bay Packers and what you were able to do as a player and keeping that era strong in everyone's minds because it was a great time for football. And as I said, I hope we get to talk again as well. Thanks, Johnny. Great to be with you. I enjoyed the time. Uh, Pleasant memories. Thank you. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can subscribe to The Bridge Sports Podcast on iTunes. Please leave a positive rating and review if you enjoy the show. And by doing so, you'll immediately be notified when new episodes of The Bridge are posted each week. You can also find the Bridge Sports Podcast on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you'd like to hear the live recording of the show, visit SportsRadioAmerica.com every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time or check them out on the TuneIn app. 
You can also visit londonbridge.com slash email to subscribe to the Bridge newsletter, which will provide weekly updates and behind-the-scenes information about the next show and who the featured guest might be. You can also find more ways to contact the show under the contact tab over on londonbridge.com. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll have more chatter of Super Bowl 51 on The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Sports.